Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone. Today's guest has been the direct cause of probably 95% of my Amazon book purchases over the past year and a half that I've been listening to his podcast. I don't think I've bought more books because of one person's recommendation since I was in university back in the 90s. It's been a bit. Today's guest has been a successful entrepreneur in his 20s. He was part of a, a series of successful tech companies, and he's gone on to create and build his own businesses. And we'll kind of talk about some of them, but that's really what's not so interesting. I mean, yes, it is very interesting about it, but what's so interesting is his podcast, The Business of Family. So The Business of Family podcast really goes into the value of family businesses, creating multi-generational wealth, looking at how money can be handed from one generation to the next with the purpose not of passing on money so you can go have fun and do whatever you want, but passing down heritage and keeping families aligned and together. In the US, just over the past 30 years, the intergenerational interactions, the the amount of times that people see grandparents, parents, et cetera, has decreased. The size of families, which obviously as the world industrializes and we go post-industrial, family size will decrease, but the connections between generations have lessened. Now, our guest today is coming in from a concept of Australia, but then the world, but his interviews with successful family businesses with experts in the space cover all forms of multi-generational businesses that are fascinating to learn from. And the fact that he is doing this not so he can go make more money himself, but just because of his curiosity is amazing. He is a wonderful podcast host. I try and learn from him and I hope to learn much more just listening to his show. But look, I will continue to ramble in with him. Let's welcome Mike Boyd, the host of the Business of Family podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hello, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been following your podcast and your newsletter for so long and as I've mentioned to you in the past, you've been a major reason for a lot of my uh, book purchases on Amazon over, since I've started following, <laughs> looking into family businesses and creating long-term planning for families. So I am so excited to actually have you here on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm fanning here. I'm a, what's it, standing, as my kids would say? <laughs> It is always great to have someone you really, really love their content on the show. You have such an amazing background. You you had some great early successes in technology. You have a portfolio of companies now that are really cool. And you have the podcast talking about family businesses and planning. You have this concept of stewardship. But even before you look at that and what you're doing with all the different companies, how do you see yourself as an entrepreneur now? Where do you see yourself on that journey of being 
an entrepreneur? That's a great question. Good place to start too, because I think I reflect on this question a lot myself. You know, as entrepreneurs, I think we have a habit of reinventing ourselves fairly often, yeah. uh, whether it's through a new venture or a new industry, we tend to find some new area of interest and throw ourselves into that. And naturally, our identity changes with each venture that we pursue. And that's certainly been my story. So, I've been an entrepreneur since I was you know, just a young boy and had plenty of failures and, and lessons along the way. But if I fast forward to where I am now, I'm probably a good 15, 20 years into my journey. And I would probably describe myself as a portfolio entrepreneur in that at this stage, I'm not really trying to build a moonshot. I'm not really trying to you know, be on the front cover of the magazine. I'm not trying to shoot the lights out. For me, it's become a calmer approach, You know, a much more considered, longer-term, higher probability of success approach to entrepreneurship. And so, I've had a, a few of the companies that I own now, I've been involved with for you know, 10 years, seven years, longer stints. I'm not just looking to exit, cash out and go again. So, when I say portfolio entrepreneur, my perspective is how can I add to what I have now? How can I grow and potentially build something new while maintaining what I already have? Because, you know, through my experience as an entrepreneur, I've had the highs and lows of failure. I've had leverage involved, which has gone wrong. I've lost money. I've made money. But the one thing that's always been um, consistent is that you know, cash is king and I, I quite enjoy cash flow. So, particularly mm-hmm. with technology companies, you know, we've, if you choose to run a profitable technology company, they can be quite marvelous things. And so, I've been focused in the last few years in sort of looking at what I can do to take that cash and redeploy it into another investment or another venture of yeah. some kind. So, this concept of portfolio entrepreneurship is probably where my headspace is at right now. I like that. Do you see the skills that you need? Because it's often the idea of you're told as an entrepreneur, you know, you have these successful entrepreneurs that some people like run a gazillion uh, Dorsey with Twitter and Square, and obviously that richest man in the world guy with, I don't know, what, 200,000 companies that he runs? No, um, just a few sort of yeah. semi known companies. Most discussion around entrepreneurs like the focus, singular. But now that you're looking at this portfolio, what had to change sort of for you in looking at it? Yeah, look, it's, I, I think it's partly my value system and partly learned behavior from my experience. So, from a value system perspective, it's never really ignited me. I've never, it's never really lit up my value system to pursue the, the VC approach. And it's something that sort of put me in the minority of the tech space for a good number of years that to me, it never made sense to raise a bunch of cash, then burn a bunch of cash with the hope that you'll be in the in the very small percentage of companies that break through and have a huge success. You know, I just struggled with the probabilities of that. I set out to build a business and be successful and get a return on investment, whether that be capital or my time. And I'm not, you know, by any means criticizing the model or saying it's not right. It just wasn't right for me. You know, from my perspective, I came from very sort of grassroots uh, when looking at this and saying, you know, you start a business to make a profit. And I think that's hardwired into me. But in saying that, I also said learn behavior. And it's not that I haven't tried the other path as well. But I did probably 12, 13 years ago now, I was involved in a software as a service startup 
that we were raising cash for and, and I'd partnered with a couple of other partners who were a good number of years my senior who were funding the seed stage of the business while we bootstrapped a sort of early products to ensure that we had product market fit. And this was a dart up in the mining and engineering space. You know, we were selling to the likes of BHP and Rio Tinto and big, big engineering firms. And long story short, I was involved in the deal for Sweat Equity and running the business full time and uh, shepherding the team and building great products. And my partners were involved also leading, but financing it. You know, that was their contribution. They had other companies. And unfortunately, it, it all blew up because uh, they ran out of cash and um, they were moving cash between entities and sort of playing a bit of a shell game. And in the end, there was a few moves that probably weren't legal and certainly weren't ethical. Yes. And most of it was happening behind my back. And so, you know, like most entrepreneurs, we have a story like that to tell or something that we've learned great lessons about. And for me, you know, I was very young. I was early 20s at the time. And this startup that I'd poured, you know, a good year of my life into building something I was incredibly passionate about just blew up. And not only did it blew up, but, you know, I was one of three partners. And despite not being the financial partner, I was on the hook for a third of the debt, right? Because I was equally responsible for the losses. And so, in my early 20s, I, I nearly went bankrupt as a result of pouring everything I had into building something I was really passionate about. And you know, I still sort of say that getting out of that situation and doing a deal to sort of cancel out that debt and make our employees whole was the best deal I ever did because it allowed me to sort of wipe the slate clean, take invaluable lessons with me and move on to the next opportunity. You know, whether whether you're dealing with bad actors or just bad luck, these things happen in life. And it certainly has affected my behavior in terms of, you know, I've never run a company since where I wasn't in control of the financials, where I wasn't managing the cash and where I didn't have a very clear path to sustainability. And so, whether it comes to raising cash or, or running a profitable business that's self-sustaining, it's something that I'm pretty passionate about. Very cool. I like that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that sort of horror story because we get in for passion some a little more planned, but I think many entrepreneurs start from passion. And if they gain any traction, it's sort of like, I have no understanding of how this is working, but it's working. And then something happens. You know, I had a company buy me, my very first company, and literally just for the cash I had in hand, because they were going bankrupt, but I had no clue. I was 25. I signed everything away, but I had a million dollars of paper. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so yeah, I know that fun. I mean, I like how you've used that then to center your focus. What is something that you found had a really great impact on your ability to be an effective entrepreneur that has helped improve your entrepreneurism book, a person, you know, something, what is something that you look back and had a really huge difference in how well you were able to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. Well, honestly, I would build upon the story that I've just told you, right? It was that critical failure. I was early 20s. I was recently engaged. I had just bought my first property and all of a sudden I was about to lose it all. And so, that was going to impact not just my pride and ego and business reputation in terms of how I saw myself as an entrepreneur, but it was also going to you know, seriously impact my relationships and personal life and capacity to build other companies beyond that. And so, that shaped me at an early age into the next opportunities and the subsequent ones beyond that. And so, I ended up through luck and circumstance and hard work, I've ended up owning and running technology companies that are certainly bigger than a lifestyle business, 
but not pursuing the VC path. And so a few of the values and, and characteristics of those companies have actually ended up quite closely aligned to what I later learned was very common in family business, even though it wasn't intentional. So I ended up owning companies that had very low debt, if any at all, were profitable, quite innovative and invested for the very long term to remain sustainable, thought you know more than five or 10 years out, held employees for a very long time because we created that sort of uh, work environment. It was low turnover and still is. You know, it was the sort of thing that we could rely on as a profit machine to then take some long-term bets. We sort of stabilized core assets and then used that to build startups and whether they be products or separate companies, we'd use the cash and the platform capability to launch new things. And and that's been incredibly rewarding. So for the, the last decade or so, I've been in that position. We own a company called Vroom Vroom Vroom, which is a, a fun name, but um, is the largest car rental aggregator in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, we compare and book cars all over the world. And, you know, it's a business that has no debt and it's been around for 20 years. And we're thinking 20 years out from now, got great long-term employees. We've got great long-term partners. We're investing for the future and it's profitable. You know, it, it throws off cash and allows us to do other things. And it's not a small business by any means, but it's a good, robust business that allows us to build great systems and and use it as a platform for other things. And so from that foundation, about seven or eight years ago, we started our online insurance business, which is also related to travel and car rental. And, you know, it sort of provided the opportunity and the market insight that there was a need. And so we did raise a, a very small amount of money. It was six figures, and but it was our own cash, right? It was it was the shareholders of Vroom who decided to invest in this. And we basically spun out our own startup and took a bet, had to jump through plenty of hoops in terms of compliance and legals and other things to get into the insurance space and really had no idea what we were doing like any good entrepreneur. Uh, but we thought we had a good idea and, and fortunately, it's proven out to be a great idea and we sell a lot of insurance these days. But again, it's the same sort of characteristics. And I describe these companies as, uh, you know, I I ran them for many years, but later I came up with a term that I like to call them digital intangibles. Mm-hmm. When I'm in the uh, the car rental aggregation business, we're really just in the business of selling a confirmation email, right? If we book you a car with Hertz or Avis or Enterprise, really what we're doing is sending you a confirmation email, which is effectively a voucher that says we've confirmed this car at this location at this rate for you. And people come to rely on that and they go and collect their rental car. The same in the insurance space, but when we sell insurance, we're actually just sending a policy confirmation email. We're sending you a policy number. But both of these businesses are digital. They're intangible. They're not e-commerce. I don't have inventory. I don't have warehouses. I don't have logistics or supply chain concerns. I don't have perishable goods. It's almost like saying we have a digital product that you're downloading, except that we're just issuing confirmation numbers or policy you know, documents. And so uh, it's not quite SaaS, but it's very, very similar in that the cost of doing one more sale is negligible, but building the system and making it robust and a great vehicle for growth is what it's all about. Yeah, your focus is acquisition, not in you have other operational, but not the actual operational structure. I love those businesses as a marketer. That's been a lot of my fun. <laughs> it's always easy to get it. So I like people who've 
developed it. Now, actually, on the insurance company, so are you pretty much um, in the US, we would call them broker and every country has, are you acting more as just that conduit to other insurance policies? So you're whichever companies you're in, uh, countries you're in, you are that legal broker between your insurance needs and the licensed providers? Similar. Oh, cool. uh, we go beyond that. Okay. We're a little bit more sophisticated. Okay. So when we first started, there wasn't a great product in this space. So we had to go and partner with an insurance company to write a policy that would actually sufficiently cover our customers in the in the rental car market. So we sort of used our IP and knowledge and scale and data to help partner with them to underwrite a product that we thought would be sustainable, but also great value for customers. And so if, uh, once we created that with them, we effectively brokered the product directly to them. But after a few years in that, we realized that we could do many more parts of it through automation or to a much more efficient standard. And so these days, Prosura, which is the name of the company, we do everything end-to-end and simply operate under an insurer's license. So we write the policy, which means we imagine it, we create it, we create the policy wording. We underwrite it from a financial perspective. We figure out how to price it. We use our technology to issue it. We do all our own customer service and we then manage the claims handling as well. So we're now licensed and and have jumped through many compliance hoops to sort of become a much more sophisticated uh, insurance operator, but we still have the backing of an insurer behind us, which is required by law. That is pretty cool. So there's a lot of, in the Twitter universe, um, there's a lot of talk about like creating your own baby Berkshire, you know, that seems to like line up as I, I kind of look at those as like, you know, you see those people and I bet in five years, they're going to be talking about family businesses. So it's like, (laughs) you can almost see where people are. It's like, okay. Yeah. I remember people talking about this, then this. It's like, oh, wait, you were a startup. Now you're a VC. Now you're doing that. And then they're like, okay. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about you know, the benefit of having an insurance company in this. Is this also something that's been beneficial for the cash flow purposes, you know, the ability to utilize cash? Yeah. So Berkshire is known for having a great float, right? For, for having all of that yeah. insurance money, which they can then invest. Ours is obviously a different scale to Berkshire, but also yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a slightly uh, more concentrated product. Right. So rather than, you know, I think they own Geico and and several insurers in the States, but they have huge amounts of capital and huge diversification across industries, but also diversification across risk types. Whereas we have concentration of risk around rental vehicles and travel. So COVID, huge disruption for us. Hailstorms, damaging vehicles, huge disruption for us. But otherwise, you know, normal sort of operations, it's if cars get into an accident or if you scratch the panel or something like that, that's the more common uh, things. And, and in which case, those risks are usually far more contained. And our insurance period, the other key difference here with Berkshire is that our insurance period is very short. The average length of rental is about four and a half days in Australia here where I'm talking to you from. And that's where we write the most business. And so we create an insurance policy which might last four days or five days and then the risk is over and and that policy effectively gets banked and and we sell another couple of thousand policies so whereas berkshire will underwrite a risk usually on an annual basis sometimes even further into the future and won't know whether or not 
that risk has occurred and whether or not they have to still hold funds aside for catastrophic events like, you know, typhoons or, or hurricanes and things like that. Flooding after um, hurricanes, yeah. So they, they hold a lot more capital for a lot longer period of time, which allows them to run treasury and investments and other things. We don't quite have the, the same advantage is my very <laughs> my long-winded answer to that. <laughs> but what I would say, though, is because we turn policies on a really short time frame, the cash conversion cycle is amazing, right? We sell the policy. We know whether or not there's any risk within five days. The policy ends. We bank the cash. We move to the next one. Whereas a lot of insurance companies are waiting a full sort of 18 months to know whether or not it was a profitable policy for them. So there's pros and cons, but you know we're pretty happy with the way it's architected today. Yeah. You have a short risk window, which is nice on using it. Cool. Now, given everything you're doing and especially the deeper research, and I know you're even looking to go further into this space, what are you finding really interesting that you think entrepreneurs should be paying more attention to? Well, I guess one way I can frame it is that you know it concerns me that the short-term attention span that you sort of see, you know, you, as you just mentioned, you see people join trends, they're going to build the, the mini Berkshire, or they're going to move on to something else. And every few years, it changes. And, you know, I was interested in and in investing in micro private equity, micro PE in 2016. And now you can't go anywhere without hearing about micro acquire and micro PE. And I'm long since out of the space because it's far too popular. It's far too competitive. And so I sort of like to be in the minority for those reasons. But I have always had and and really think it's valuable to have a very long-term view, not just in any one business, but also in life. And so I think to your point about this interest area for me, I, I've always been fascinated with multi-generational family wealth. I don't come from a wealthy family. I come from great middle-class upbringing. But you know, you look at some of the, the dynasty-type families that have been around four or five seven generations. And I've always been curious as to how they do that and do it effectively. And part of the thing that that really spurred my interest in this area is that after recovering from that entrepreneurial failure in my early 20s that I told you about before, I then went on and had some some success quite rapidly after that. As t- tends to be the case. You have a huge failure, you don't know how you can possibly dig out of it, and then you have a big win. So, I sort of evolved from happy middle-class upbringing to some level of wealth in my 20s and had to adapt to my value system and understanding of, well, okay, now I've got some money. What do I do with it? How do I behave? How do I raise children? You know, I started having children in my late 20s, early 30s. And my wife and I said, well, we now need to figure out how we raise our children because our kids are growing up with more wealth and more abundance around them than what we did. And so the way we were raised is is naturally going to be different because we're jetting around the world and we have multiple homes and we have nice things, but we don't want to spoil our kids. You know, we don't want to raise spoiled brats. So sort of some of these philosophical questions, even stemming from parenthood, made us think, how do we do this and how do we do it effectively? And what can we learn from families that have trodden the path before us? And so you know, today I have a, a podcast called The Business of Family, and I do exactly that. I interview successful, generational, wealthy families, not so much about the family business, but more so about how they run the business of family. So what I mean by that is, do they have a family constitution? Do they host family yes. meetings? Do they have a value system or a vision for the family itself, even beyond that main wealth creation vehicle? 
And from my sort of interest in the area and study over the years, the famous adage that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, most people lose the the wealth by the third generation. And so if you study the fourth generation and beyond, the families that are quite successful are very, very intentional about it. There are a few cases where you see generational wealth get to the fourth generation by luck because mm-hmm. yeah. there's a number of factors working against you. The, the primary one, which most people don't realize, is that families grow faster than the wealth. Families grow faster than a family business. And so if the first generation creates wealth, and even if you still own the business that's throwing off wealth, by the time you have four generations to feed – or to split the wealth between, you're dividing it into so many pieces that each piece is quite small now. And so, whereas you might have had one person at the top of the pyramid or two people at the top of the pyramid who were very, very wealthy, by the time you share it with the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren, that family tree multiplies so quickly, the family outstrips the wealth. And so, if you're not regenerating the wealth, if you're not encouraging entrepreneurship, if you're not sort of replenishing the family capital as you go, then very quickly just you know, by design, families run out of cash. But the other big factor in studying this is that most family wealth is not lost or destroyed by poor financial planning. It's almost always lost due to a breakdown in relationships. It's because brother and sister or mum and dad or uncle or what have you don't get along or disagree with who gets what, or can't divvy up the assets because it's not all liquid, right? It's you know who gets the who gets the holiday house and who gets the business, and what if you work in the business versus someone who's just a passive shareholder? Do you are you entitled to more or less, or you know? And these sorts of things, as we're very well aware, rip families apart. What I'm really interested in is the minority again. I'm I'm interested in studying the minority of families who are successful, who buck this trend and manage to not only hold on to their wealth for generations, but also hold on to the family, hold on to the values, keep things together. They're happy and wealthy. And that's that's so incredibly rare, but it exists. You know, I was trying to model this for my own family. This is what I wanted to create. I wanted to lay the foundation for generational wealth. I wanted to document our value system. I wanted to do things with intention. And I wanted to learn from people that had done it before. And to cut a very long story short, I couldn't find what I was looking for. The content didn't exist. And so, I I decided to create it with my podcast and share my learnings as I went because I was fortunate enough to have connections to some of these families through my network. And I'm a member of YPO and there's some amazing families in there. And some of them have been generous enough to share their story with me publicly. You know, there's there's enough breadcrumbs in that that you can sort of follow them and and put pieces together and build your own plan for generational wealth if if that's of interest. Yeah, and the family constitution that's had a big thing and something that you know I've started working on and more than a few purchases of books. But the thing that I've found, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I know you use a different term, is sort of the family storytelling. I've heard you talk about this a bit, and I was amazed because. Yeah, you know, with my family, you know, we'll talk about our ancestors, the history. You know, one line goes all the way back past the revolution to kind of like the Brits standing right outside New York when it was still Dutch, going like, uh, "Yeah, amazing, let's take that." But like that was just general. Since looking and 
I've gone out and gotten the family history and my kids who paying attention to me is a very limited thing, <laughs> their yeah, interest yeah. has increased. So I really love that. Can you talk a little bit more about like that impact? Cause you've talked a lot about how it, it helps keep families together. Yeah, absolutely. And look, this is a, a topic that I've grown to become quite passionate about, but I started probably with the same attitude as your kids. Right? When my parents or would talk about the family history or the ancestors or you know, people I'd never met and likely never would, it's sort of like, yeah, it's boring. What's next? You know, how does it apply to me? How does it apply to modern life? Why do I want to know all this history? You know, some some pieces were interesting, but being able to relate it back to me, being able to relate it back to us and a why, something bigger, is really where my knowledge in this area deepened and where my interest grew massively. And what I learned is that generational storytelling, which is what I like to call it, passing down the wisdom from the elders to the next generation is a really powerful force. And and I'm not talking about using Ancestry.com to build the family tree. I'm talking about a grandfather or a grandmother sitting around the fire, the campsite, you know, telling the yarns, if you like, really telling that almost folklore type, telling the stories of how they came to the country with you know, the equivalent of $5 in their pocket and started from nothing or telling that story of the founder of the family and not just, you know, some nice to hear stories about the relations, but really sharing the trials and tribulations of what ancestors before them have gone through and overcome in order for you to actually be here today and, and have the opportunities that you have. And we all have that, right? We all come from a legacy of all sorts and and different kinds. But the probability of us even being alive and having the amazing life that we have is tiny. And so, there's actually some research that has come out in the last few years that says that children who understand and know the family lineage where they come from, but more importantly, the stories from their elders and what they've been through, trials and tribulations, those children who know those stories are more resilient and have less likelihood of having serious mental health concerns, right? And so, all of a sudden, you remember where my journey started with all of this. I, I had my own kids and I went from middle class to having some level of wealth. And I said, how do I raise great kids amid wealth? And all of a sudden, the light goes on. It's like, my kids need to understand how this was created, but not just by me, but what came before me. How did I have the opportunity to to fail and fail and fail and then ultimately succeed as an entrepreneur? What platform was I given? What education opportunities was I given to even have that possibility? And so, as I interview these families now on the podcast, and some of them are you know serious generational wealth, I always ask, how do you document your family history? How do you share your stories? How do you pass down the wisdom Because when you're talking to a fifth generation family member, they all have stories. They can all tell you where it began. They can tell you the founding story. They can tell you the how their great grandfather or great grandmother or mother or or father grew the wealth or lost the wealth or nearly lost it. And oftentimes when they're telling these stories, they're talking through world wars. You know, I've spoken to many families that have started, you know, 100 years, 200 years ago and had, you know, incredible amounts of suffrage and loss through world wars or famines or, you know, other almost COVID-like environments on a world scale. And then they, the, the children or the great-grandchildren in some cases are telling me the story of how the family survived, how the family rebuilt, how they prospered once again. And 
to me, that's incredibly powerful. That's that's a big part of the value system as to why these families are five, six, seventh generation and still together because they've got this understanding and belief that they're part of something bigger than themselves. And, you know, you can tell by the way I'm speaking, I'm not talking about individuals. I'm not talking about ego. I'm not talking about one person at one point in history. I'm talking about being a part of something. And so, it's particularly different in in our culture, in Western culture. You know, right? I'm Australian. I'm speaking to you in the US, but you know, if you go and interview families from Asia or South America or Europe, they often have a completely different cultural perspective. That's more about the whole family unit and less about the individual. Whereas in Western society, we want freedom to explore ourselves and be independent and individual and pursue our own path, which makes it even more necessary to have this common thread of who are we as a family, what do we believe in, what are we trying to do. I just love this stuff. I think it's fascinating. I remember when I first came across your podcast, and I am without a doubt aspirational in all terms of family business, but that's part of the fun. But just the thought process and looking back at, you know, I do come from one half of my family it was that typical blue blood American, yada, yada, yada. And then it faded, you know, partially because multiple generations of eight plus kids have a tendency of doing it. Yeah. My dad's the oldest of six. So it's like, yeah, okay. I can see where, you know, the big yeah. mansions and everything kind of, you know, you get spread around, right. And then there's a, and then there's a lot get, less, but I think it's also, at least very American, it was about the individual, like multiple, you know, one was a general who was also a doctor who founded a hospital. Another one was chief of surgery, you know, multiple generations, one had head of a law practice. It wasn't a continuation of business. It was sort of the value generated during a career. And then whatever was left was passed on. But the mindset of creating something that lasts longer, or at least a utilization of that, that's been ringing a huge bell for me. And it's like, okay, yes, how to think about that either by generating or by investing in such a way that it's not, can we get a 10% or sorry, since I am involved in crypto, 4,000% you know, in the next three days. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, oh my God, some of this stuff. Th- yeah. There's a perspective on this that, that I'd like to share, AJ, because I've spent a lot of time mm. thinking about this myself, right? I, I'm in the tech industry and things move and change quite quickly. Even though I've, I, I've owned my companies for a good period of time, I don't for a moment consider that they'll still be here in 100 years. And so, when I say that I plan for the very long term, how do you do that, particularly if you're in crypto or, or Silicon Valley or you know following some sort of SaaS path, which is so popular these days? And at the beginning of this interview, I described myself as a portfolio entrepreneur, which sounds like a bit of a disconnect from family business, right? Because I'm not building one entity. It's not all about one good old manufacturing plant that's been there for 80 years and I'm going to steward it for 20 more and then my son or daughter is going to take over. That's not really my mentality, but you can find so many examples of that, including some of the people I've interviewed, because that's what was important through the industrial revolution or post-war or pre-war. That's the stories that were of the day. The story of our day is is quite often technology. And so, how does that apply to this whole philosophy I'm talking about with generational wealth and passing things down and keeping them going? The key distinction is I often refer to family enterprise, not a family business. And to me, a family enterprise can be a collection of businesses, a portfolio of businesses, a portfolio of assets, could be you know, you could have substantial real estate, 
holdings, you could have crypto holdings, you could have all sorts of things. But what are we building and investing in, in terms of assets for the benefit of the family? for the the greater good, not the individual. And, you know, a lot of families when they build substantial wealth naturally find their way into setting up a family office, which is, you know, one good path. Others will put a a family enterprise structure in, which is really whatever they want it to be. You can put a family enterprise structure in at the very beginning. You don't have to have substantial wealth. But the enterprise is really made up of the family's value systems, usually some sort of charter or constitution document which defines who is a family member, who's entitled to participate, what are we here for, what's the purpose of all of this. And uh, it's really governance as a as an organization. We're, we're governing the family enterprise much like we would a corporation. And so, you know, from my perspective, I'm trying to build a basket of assets for my family that's governed by my family enterprise. And you've mentioned a couple of times this idea of stewardship, which is a a key part of this. I'm working towards building assets for my family, which I will steward. In other words, take care of and nurture and then pass on to the next steward, to the next generation in better form than I found them. So, if I'm a third generation inheritor, rather than saying I'm one of four children and I'm getting a quarter of the wealth and we're going to liquidate everything, instead- a really sensible way to do it is say, we're going to keep 100% of the pie together. We're not going to carve it into pieces. Rather than the four of us getting a quarter each, the four of us are going to act as our generation stewards, right? So, it's more like a family bank. We might fund some loans from it. We might borrow some money from the family. We might repay it. It might kickstart the investment in our next entrepreneurial venture and the family enterprise will ultimately earn some dividends or a return on that investment. But we're not trying to diminish the wealth. We're trying to grow it. We're trying to improve it. And as a result, we're stewarding whatever we inherited and passing it on to the next generation in hopefully the same or better condition as to when we inherited it. And so, there's a great book on this called The Family Bank. And it's, it's well worth a read because it really talks about having the right forms of capital In terms of family capital, we talk about financial capital a lot, but it's also the intellectual capital, the social capital, the human capital, and sort of having value systems and and understanding around each of those pillars and then stewarding each form of capital for each generation. I have just sort of two questions. One, given how much of an impact you're having with the podcast, and I know you have your other businesses. You've been an entryway into this type of thinking for many entrepreneurs. Are you looking to go further in this beyond the podcast in helping others understand this multi-generational opportunity? It, look, it's a great question. As an entrepreneur, I'm naturally wired to look for business opportunities <laughs> yes. and ways to, to do things. But you know, I, I also appreciate that I'm in a very unique situation where you know I've had 50-odd families so far who have been generous enough to share these stories, these very, very private stories about how their wealthy families operate. They've shared them with me in a very high trust environment and allowed me to publish them. And remember, the reason I create this content is because it didn't exist. I couldn't find what I was looking for that I wanted to model. And so, very, very aware that if I were to build a business around this or productize it or monetize it in some way, I have to be very cautious, very considerate, very respectful of the content and the audience because what I've been trusted with. And for me too, there's no better example of living the values of investing over the long term, playing the long game 
and creating massive value than literally the business of family podcast and newsletter because that's what the topic is about. And so it's not a quick win for me. I'm, I don't, I'm not out to make a quick buck. You know, I've been doing it for a good period of time already. And, you know, it's my privilege to connect to absolutely incredible people all around the world and have these discussions. So for the time being, it's my learning opportunity and I share my learnings with others. Of course, it's crossed my mind as to what else I can do, but I want to do it just, you know, so cautiously. And I've, I've got other businesses too. So it's a, a labor of love for the time being. How do you define your success as an entrepreneur? What will success look like for you? A big part of my operation in the tech space and what puts me in the minority is my focus on the profit motive. Making money, right? You, you, what do they say? You can't go out of business taking a profit, right? And it is the game. And, and so I'm a big believer in, in staying in the game. And that's part of having that long-term view. So if you're making money and you have low or no debt, you can weather storms, right? And, and I've got two businesses here that I've told you about today that are both exposed to the travel industry. We're 18 months into this COVID environment and we're still living off our own cash, right? We've been incredibly successful. We've acquired competitors. It's been a, a terrible period, but this is what family enterprises do as well, right? They're prepared to weather black swan events. They're prepared to weather world wars uh, and other major interruptions. And I'm not saying it's easy by any means, but if you have that long-term view and you prepare and you operate sustainably, there's a much greater chance that you're here for the long term. And so that tends to be my perspective, having that staying power, making some money and also taking some money along the way. I don't think it's all about building paper profits. I think you also have to have a nice life and make sure it's enjoyable and, and look after those that you love. But for us also, it's about diversifying some of that capital into the family investment vehicle, which forms part of the family enterprise and diversifying the family wealth so that we have something to pass on to the next generation. So the lens through which I see the world at the moment. I like that a lot. I mean, it helps put my own efforts in perspective. And I think a lot of the audience will look at it too, because it's like, as you well know, an entrepreneurial journey is up, down, left, right, center. And I look in the long term, I'm like, oh, wow, we're, we're up. But, you know, it was kind of, it was down 50,000% up, you know, 55 point. There's no smoothness to it. So really using that as you're setting your attention for the long term. Cool. You can always ride the waves, you know, and, and of course, I watch the trends and I'm, I'm comparing how we performed to the last month and last year. You know, there's short-term metrics as well. But I think, you know, if you just zoom out a layer or two and you say, what was important to me when I'm in my 90s? Or if you go and talk to an 80 or a 90-year-old and you say, what was important? Oftentimes, it comes back to absolutely be a great entrepreneur, work with great people, build great products and businesses and services make a heap of cash, be super successful, enjoy a bit of ego, all that's fine. But at the end of the day, you also have to bring some meaning to it. What's it all for? What's the purpose? What is it beyond me? If I'm successful, I build a great big business and all of a sudden I'm wealthy, does that mean I've won the game? Or does that leave me feeling a little bit lost and trying to figure out what's next? And, and I've lived that. You know, I've certainly had that feeling. And I've talked to a lot of my friends in YPO who sort of it's a phrase I used that I think I heard from Robin Sharma originally. It's called the Titan's Decline. Talk to people at the top of their game. And once they've won, they've achieved the goal, they, they achieve the thing that they set out to achieve, then they just stop and they're lost for a while and they can't find purpose and they don't know what's next. And they sort of lose that amazing energy that got them to the top of the mountain. And I think sometimes if you say, well, 
now I'm starting to do it for my kids or my grandkids, or now I'm going to start an education fund for the first time to provide opportunities for my grandkids to go to college, or I'm going to do something for the very long term. All of a sudden, I've got purpose and meaning beyond me. And that often gives people the energy and lights them up again, gives them some purpose to what they're doing. And I do like that because, yeah, it is that, oh, great, I did it. But what do you do to achieve enlightenment? Sweep the floors, carry the water. What do you do once you, you know, achieve enlightenment? Sweep the floors, carry the water. Carry the water. It's like exactly. life goes on. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, wait, I'm not Superman. And even Superman kind of, you know, if you really read the comics, spends a lot of his time, you know, Superman level angst. It's different yeah. than most of us. But no, I thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really look forward to learning more from you as you continue with the podcast Just thank you. Thank you so much for being here on the show today. Absolutely my privilege. It was lots of fun. Thanks so much for letting me tell my story, AJ. It was a privilege. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Getting to have Mike on the show was a lot of fun and really important to me because, as I mentioned earlier, I've been listening to his podcast and reading his newsletter for a while, and I've bought so many books from it. So getting his own personal perspective and sort of how he's positioned and looking at himself was great. I really think many of us, even if you're not thinking of creating a structure to hold multi-generational wealth, I think you can learn so much of long-term thinking, this idea of what we do and the value we create over time from listening to his The Business of Family podcast. So look, go check out the links below. Yes, I'm singling here on a podcast with my hands. So yes, I'm waving my hands down to a link that you can. But it's so much to think about that impact and learning from people and what he does that concept of interviewing the people who are doing what he wants to create is something I'm trying to do. I learn so much from the guests who come on the show and I'm trying to bring their insight to you. So getting to talk to people who have done what we want to do, it's, we all hear that all the time is something we should do. But the reality is it's so hard to focus on that and do that again and again and find the people. So it's really, really great to be listening to his efforts, the people he gets on the show and that trust he develops with them. So please go subscribe to his podcast. It is well worth your time and you probably will look at your business in the same way after doing so. All right, everyone, please. If you like the show today and you learned some stuff from Mike, share it with your friends. Anyone you think could get some value from it, please go share it to them. Send them our subscription link. Send them to our social connections. Just help us get the word out. We really do appreciate every effort to get new people to listen. There's so much great things to learn from other entrepreneurs. Also, please join us on the social connections. We'd love to hear from you. See the links below. Find us on Facebook. Find us in LinkedIn. Instagram, interwebs, the intertubes, just go. Let us know what you liked about an episode, questions you may have about your own journey, things you would like us to cover in the future, things you don't like that we're doing. Please let us know. Sign up for our newsletter. All right, everyone. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. I can't wait to talk to you again. Goodbye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. 
This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.